This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time. To us, anyway. Yet legend tells a different story. One whose evidence is all around us. Etched in stone. Welcome to Now Playing's Blair Witch Project Retrospective Series. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're discussing The Blair Witch Project. Starring Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, Joshua Leonard. Directed by Daniel Mayak and Eduardo Sanchez. It's, it's my fault. I insisted on everything. I insisted on us reviewing this because I'm co-host of Now Playing Arnie. Fuck! Stuart in LA. Hey, and this is the host that has really sporadic hair patterns on his chest, Jacob. <laughs> well, here we are discussing... Is this a horror classic now? It's 16 years old. Does this count as classic horror? It seems like one of the few big horror franchises we've never covered franchises well there's two (laughs) (laughs) it's not a big franchise it's a big movie but we knew we saw the call we saw it on facebook twitter email people felt we haven't done enough horror this year and they actually said king isn't horror enough dead zone cujo firestarter they said that's not real horror which is things i think i said in the movie reviews too they wanted scares chills well what about Ghosts. This kind of is the film that started this paranormal activity found footage craze. Blair Witch Project back in 99. Yeah, that's definitely one thing they say about us is we don't like to cover found footage. And they're right. I don't. (laughs) I don't want to necessarily watch people with camcorders running around from things that we don't even see or can barely see. Let alone people with cell phone cameras doing it. I also want to put it out there, just in case people are confused, this is not the first of anything. This is not a pioneer of that. This didn't invent that. Listeners made that very clear to us when we did fucking Diary of the Dead. Everybody's like, Cannibal Holocaust, you must review Cannibal Holocaust. I can't count how often I've heard that. I still haven't seen Cannibal Holocaust, (laughs) but man, did I get the emails. This might not be the first, but I feel like this is the one that popularized it. Absolutely. There was a movie six months prior to this about filmmakers that go into the New Jersey forest to look for the Jersey Devil and end up dead. And it's all just their footage. I mean, this concept was done exactly the same way, but did not hit in the same way. And yes, you you can say up and down that there are better earlier versions of the found footage genre, you really can't say there's a more popular one before or since. Even Paranormal Activity, none of those have approached what this movie did. And I called this out during Mad Max. That original Mad Max held the record for most profit based on its budget until Blair Witch came along. It dethroned it. 
It was a huge success. It's about $25,000 to make, and it's made, at least in the United States, $140 million, and probably worldwide double that. Yeah, it is incredibly profitable. $250 million, give or take, worldwide. Okay, well, 110 additional from international sales. Yeah. Pretty impressive. I remember that was the story. When this movie came out, what I most remember is that it opened the same day as the Jan de Bont, Steven Spielberg, very expensive haunting remake. And all the reviews couldn't forget to point out that these kids that went out into the woods knew more about horror than Steven Spielberg and the director of Speed did with all their millions of special effects. But Ice was at Blair Witch Project opening weekend. How did you get in? I went opening weekend too. I was turned away. Sold out. Okay, well, I was living in Springfield. You were not. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Chicago. We had more showings and they were all sold out. It took me three weeks to get into this movie. I got in on a Saturday matinee opening weekend in a mostly empty theater. Wow. Well, quite a difference. Well, keep in mind, I want to set the stage for this. This was 1999 and the people who knew about this film were primarily either film buffs, which I was, or internet buffs. You talked about that other film that I didn't know about that came out six months earlier. And while you were talking, I'm like, well, what did Blair Witch have that the other one didn't? And it hit me. A website. Yes. Yeah, I did not see this film until last year. I finally watched it on Halloween or around Halloween, where that's when I tend to watch. Uh, You couldn't wait a year. (laughs) I know. You could have been our newbie, Jacob. I I feel like I still am, and I'm glad I did. I'll talk about it at the end why I'm glad I watched this a year ago. But I remember my brother, who's about three years younger than me, he was hyped for this. He saw this. Him and all his friends, Arnie, they were on the internet. Like, they were buying into this. Like, the marketing was that this was a real story, that this was true. And my brother and his friends were convinced of that because of the website. I have always been a debunker. I'm the natural born skeptic. Stuart, when we were kids on the playground, tried to convince me and he had every other student bamboozled that there was a ghost at our local playhouse. Who's to say there wasn't? I'm still not convinced. (laughs) Yes, but you didn't see him (laughs) hanging from a rope. I might have. (laughs) I've always been the skeptic, and I was working in computers at this point. I was on the internet all the time. I even had a website back then, and this was right when the internet was starting to become very common. People were finally starting to get rid of AOL and get truly online. And I heard stuff about this movie, and I found this website. And the website presented it like it was real. It had police reports, it had all this stuff, but it was also a little bit of a tricky site to navigate. It's still online. It's there for historical purposes. I went back and revisited it, and I remembered all of my pixel hunting and things. I had nothing better to do. What the hell? I was, what, 24 years old? I could spend hours and hours downloading these postage stamp-sized videos that took, like, an hour to download. (laughs) This is the same year of the Phantom Menace trailers, by the way. Yeah. And it only took me like a half an hour before our, and there was no Snopes, there was no news reports, but in a half an hour, I'm like, okay, (laughs) this was a movie. But then I got to laugh because I had friends coming to me like, don't tell anyone, but I don't think this is real. I'm like, yeah, I know it's not real. (laughs) Heather Donahue was on Leno last night. (laughs) 40%. They did some polling at the end of the year. 40% of the people that saw this movie believed they were watching a snuff film. They literally thought that three filmmakers went out into the woods, 
filmed this stuff and this footage was found a year later. They took the movie's advertising at face value. I never fell victim to that. I didn't even know that that was going to be a thing. I always read about what films premiere at Sundance. Even there, they started the buzz there. When this movie opened on Sundance, they didn't have the actors there to do a Q&A afterwards. They didn't talk about how they actually wrote and made this film. They just screened it at midnight. It blew people away, and it got the chatter going. And yes, at the dawn of the internet age, you're going to have people taking an urban myth and running with it. All of a sudden, you have all infactual information being put out there about Blair Witches that the filmmakers didn't even have to create. I mean, everyone wanted to participate. They even put up missing signs all around Sundance, and then somebody else took them down because somebody actually went missing and found it (laughs) insensitive. (laughs) This does feel like a pioneer for what you see at Comic-Con now with all the viral marketing. Yes, it really was. This was one of the first movies to really begin their marketing online. And I've got to say right now, I am coming in as the fan of this series. I saw both Blair Witch movies in theaters. I played the Blair Witch video games. I had the Blair Witch action figures. Yes, they made them. Was it a pile of rocks and some sticks? (laughs) No, no, no. You can see the witch? Yes, uh, Todd McFarlane, as part of his movie Maniacs line, got together with the rights holders for this and created concept designs that they signed off on and said, okay, yes, we'll say this is the witch. But there were two of them. There were two different witch figures, (laughs) so you could take either one you wanted. One in the veil, like they talk about in this movie, and one without the veil. And they pretty much kind of looked like Groot, really. I mean, they looked like scary Groot. (laughs) Like if Groot and Pumpkinhead had an offspring. Uh, You know what? Funny thing, uh, I remember going to a Halloween party that year and not wanting to get into costume and someone was like what are you supposed to be and that was my line i'm the blair witch you can't disprove it (laughs) so i'm coming in as the fan and i can say there was so much more to this movie than this movie it feels to me like this is just a piece of the blair witch story we talked about in our star wars review how that movie had enough depth and enough of a rich universe that there were stories that could be tacked onto it here I feel that the filmmakers didn't make a movie. They made a universe that this film is tacked into. People went and saw this film because they saw the documentary that aired on sci-fi that looked like an actual news expose about this and included some footage and was told from the point of view of a reporter looking back on the botched investigation into these three missing kids. And then this movie itself, the website, the various rumors about it, and it would continue to go on with this expanding mythology that these guys did. Whatever we say about the movie, this is a genius of marketing. You know, it's not old either. I mean, I feel like throughout time, Psycho purported to be a true story. Texas Chainsaw started with that kind of same labeling about how these are real events. Well, no, they're not. And the filmmakers know that. But if you can get people to buy into it, and this movie is predicated on us believing the reality of the situation, it really can suck you into a horror scenario in a much deeper way than if you were just watching something you knew was falsified it begs the question though is Blair Witch a good movie or a good prank the (laughs) fact that we have to go beyond the experience to even really know what may have attacked these kids in this footage I mean it is so abstract 
that truthfully, you have to go to the website. You have to go to the supplemental materials. Normally, we're like, we're here to review the movie. We don't want to look at all of that. There's no way to talk about this movie without talking about the comic book, without talking about the spinoff books, without talking about the video games and all of that. They designed it so that that is the experience. This is an experience. This is not just a movie. I find that there's very little information out there on how this was actually made. I found it difficult to know how these guys, I feel like they, they're trying to cover up the fact that somebody wrote this, right? I mean, this is... And not really. I remember hearing something, seeing some news junket or something where like they would go to bed in the tent and let the, yeah, the directors or someone had this plan and they would set things up and then they'd have to react to them. I don't know how much of that is true, but I remember seeing a news piece about that. All right. Here's everything I've been able to piece together from the pretty uninformative director and producer commentary but it did have enough information that corroborated what I read in interviews and IMDb trivia and everything pieced together. I think I have a picture of what's been put together. And if I don't have it right, then the greatest trick these filmmakers ever pulled was convincing me this is how the film was made. There was no script. And Stuart, you asked if this is a good film or a good prank. I'll say right now, it's not a film by the standards with which we usually judge a film because this is all improv and the prank is on the actual actors in this film. Heather Donahue, Michael Williams, Joshua Leonard, they weren't told exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They were be given drops. They wouldn't even see the directors. The directors had radios that they could communicate with in case of an emergency, but the directors weren't there. They were far away spying on them and setting up pranks and setting up traps. In the early scenes when they're going through talking to the townies, the actors, who are also the cameramen, they really did film this themselves, hmm. talked to people, and they thought they were complete strangers. And they were, like, really excited. Oh, my God, we found people to play along. Meanwhile, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez had planted people there. Mm. <laughs> I was wondering how they got those townspeople. If they were just improving and making stuff up. I saw one of the waitresses was actually his, one of the director's sister. Yeah, but the actors in this didn't know that. And yet you also have something. That lady holding a baby was not in on it and just started making shit up to be part of the documentary. <laughs> oh, she's the best one. Yeah. yeah she, was she was not a plant. And the way the baby covers her mouth, that's creepy. Yeah, and it's just happenstance. Wow, yeah, you gotta use her. She's fantastic. And so what we have here is an eight-day shoot where those three really were in the woods, and they didn't know necessarily what would happen. They wow. got a 35-page outline okay. that said, here's the general arc, but then things would happen, like they were just told, walk west, and they would plant things like those piles of rocks or that bound thing of sticks, and the actors wouldn't know to look for it, so they just walk right past it, and the director's like, oh, fuck. And then they have to radio in, oh, you you got to go back and look at that now. <laughs> but this is really almost, if you've ever been to one of those murder mystery dinner type things, it's almost that level where the directors have created a haunted house environment for these three actors to go in and film themselves improving everything, and over eight days it was filmed, and then over months and months, just hours and hours and hours of footage was edited into this. And they went through many edits. They had a two and a half hour edit. They had the edit they showed at Sundance. They got a lot of feedback about characters and went back and cut out a lot of stuff. 
to soften some of this, but this is not a scripted film. If we start looking at this as acts and arcs and things, none of that was ever intended. This was so low budget, a whole bunch of student filmmakers going out there, guerrilla style, making it up as they went along. Incredibly risky. It's amazing they got anything out of it. It's I really want to compliment them. Maybe not as filmmakers, but yeah, as people working in, I don't know what you call it, performance art or interactive, yeah, haunted houses. I mean, they could have had nothing. They could have been out there eight days and had people wet in the rain, not playing along. But they are actors. What you're telling me is that these three people knew that they needed to give a performance, that sitting on their butts and was not allowed. They would have to perform as their character through whatever scenario comes their way. Correct. Although what that character was, all they knew is it was a horror film that character should be frightened. The entire interpersonal relationships, it's like reality TV. It was all sculpted during editing. Mm. You know, you can create a villain in reality TV, whereas if you're actually living in the house with the person, mm -hmm. they may not be so bad. Mm -hmm. All those little tricks, they implemented those here long before reality TV was really commonplace. Ah, yeah. All the actors really hated each other. Like, they did not get along at all. <laughs> and it comes through. <laughs> I gotta say, yeah. there's a lot of uh, swearing and a lot of tension. It's not just because when things are going wrong. I, I do get the sense that these people don't genuinely like each other. But then again, I've been on a lot of student film shoots. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you could say this isn't a film in the traditional sense, but they're putting artistic craft behind it. They're, yeah. you know, with the editing or trusting it to these three actors that they're going to be able to do something here. I mean, I, I don't think you totally discount it just as a prank. That's absolutely true. I mean, because it's not scripted doesn't mean that it wasn't crafted. And yeah, it's it's just weird to think of giving up the directing control. As a writer, a director, you feel like I'm the one, you know, manipulating the situation here. It will look like this because I will make it by stepping back and saying, you actors, all the lines, that's there. They came up with all that stuff. 100% improv. Wow. And understand, I mean, all the directors did was like, we're going to hang stick things from trees. Yeah. They didn't tell the actors how to react to those stick things. Uh -huh. They put the stick things there. They didn't tell them shots to make. They just gave the people cameras, went in, improv your entire reaction based upon the character you know. Now, one thing that they did have on, like, I hate the textual bonus features on old DVDs, but this had one of them. Oh, oh, actual text. Yeah, I yeah. never do that. <laughs> yeah, I did for this one. And the producer had researched army training techniques that they used, like every day giving them less food without telling them so that they'd be hungry and cranky and intentionally causing them to mentally and physically break down to hit a part of their psyche that they wouldn't just be able to pull upon as regular actors. So they're creating this virtually torturous scenario for their actors and filming it and hoping it comes a movie out of it. And that's why I say they're not directors, they're plotters. You know, they're they're hanging stuff from trees to see what happens. It is like a haunted house more than a movie. Yeah, because, I mean, they could have still done this scripted if you got the right actors and trusted them to be able to give legitimate scary shots. Not everyone is method. Not everyone needs to feel they're being chased by a witch to give you that performance. You say not everyone's Nick Cage? <laughs> well, you know, the method acting, I think that is the stereotypical way we, we think of good acting as being people that get into their characters 
so much they lose perspective on who they are and and become those people. That's not the only way to get a performance like that. You can get great performances like that, but that's not the only way. And if they had classically trained actors to go out into the woods, they wouldn't need to torture them. They could just get that performance. But it sounds like they wanted to be Machiavelli. It it sounded like they didn't know what they wanted. They wanted to see what would happen. It was an experiment. It's kind of a young person's mindset. I mean, I remember making student films in college and you don't have great actors. You start thinking of ways to trick your actors to get emotion out of them and things yes. like that. Right. When you have bad actors, you you do this to them. Yes. And these are some bad actors. <laughs> we haven't seen too many of them. I did notice that Josh has worked again. I did see him in one other movie. Yeah, I did too. I actually, I think I saw him on some television he did. Bates Motel. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. He was the psychiatrist that... Norma dated. Uh-huh. Oh, that's weird. I didn't even put that together. I do watch Bates Motel. I forgot about that one. I saw him in a Cuba Gooding Jr. movie about black skin divers that I didn't care for very much, but he was in it. He was the racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of them have really gone on to work. Heather has gone on the record saying that she was blacklisted for her participation in Blair Witch. <laughs> Maybe they just all realized you guys aren't really actors you were in a hit film by pure luck and you are not exactly the next romantic lead in the richard gear film yay i don't know that the filmmakers work too much after this either we're gonna talk about it i did bone up on their career we can talk about this after we talk about this experiment we can talk about what they graduated to do but wow you're right this does not prove anyone's talent really by being this experimental what it means is that what we're watching here is lightning in a bottle and not necessarily the plotting of people that know how to tell a great ghost story well then arnie i think your job is easy here why don't you give us whatever came together as a plot three student filmmakers go out in the woods and are never seen again the end (laughs) oh come on you can do better than that (laughs) That's what they tell us right at the beginning. Yeah, I think that's the plot, but all right. I can give more detail. Please, thank you. In October 1994, three film students went into the Maryland woods (laughs) while making a documentary about the local myth of the Blair Witch. The spirit of Ellie Kedward, a resident of Blair, Maryland, who was sentenced for witchcraft and exiled in 1785. Those three students, director Heather, cameraman Josh, and audiotech Mike, never returned from their trip, but in 1995, their recordings were found. Edited together, it shows the three interviewing town locals getting conflicting stories about the witch and other atrocities that's taken place over the centuries in the area, all attributed to Ellie, including the tale of Rustin Parr, a hermit who lived in the woods and said he was compelled by the Blair Witch to lure in young boys and kill them. Because he could feel the eyes of the boy on him as he killed the other, he'd make one boy stand in the corner facing the wall while the other boy was slaughtered. But in the woods, the filmmakers get lost. And in the night, they hear noises and unseen people or things assault their tents and vandalize their packs. The three start infighting as hunger and exhaustion set in, and their planned three-day hike stretches to a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth day. Frustrated, Mike secretly throws their map into a river, leaving them literally lost in the woods. But through it all, the cameras keep rolling, thanks to Heather's obsessive desire to get her film. And on that sixth day, they awaken to find Josh gone, though in the night they can still hear him shouting. Mike and Heather hike on and eventually come upon an abandoned house. They go inside and we see Mike's camera is dropped. Heather catches up to him and her camera shows Mike standing in the corner like the victims of Parr. We then hear a thud and Heather's camera falls to the ground 
as credits roll. So, yeah, the Blair Witch. We got Ellie Kedward. I think she's the Blair Witch. We also got Rustin Parr. There's other stories that we all get that create this mythology that, honestly, I mean, I've seen the documentary. I played the games. I think the only one that really matters is Rustin Parr. Not even the Blair Witch herself is all that important in this film. That is the weird thing. Like, seeing this for the first time a year ago was that, yeah, it's not about the Blair Witch. But you're saying Ellie whatever in this year and that for her. Was that in the movie or are you getting that from other sources? Because I get descriptions of this Blair Witch. I never really got a good idea of what she was. No, this is not in the movie. Ellie Kedward is never mentioned in the movie. Okay, so that name, you got it from books or video games or something. I got it from that sci-fi special when I was really trying to pour over it. And it's also in, like, the text readme of the DVD and all that, but no. Because I was trying to write down each legend, and I didn't come up with that name, so... (laughs) Ellie Kedward. I got more out of her because I checked a book out of the library called The Blair Witch Dossier. It's it's basically, it's buying into it. There's nothing in this book that tells you how they tricked the actors or why they wrote this story or, or how they filmed it or anything. It is completely taking the idea that after Heather went missing, her mom hired a private detective and he did all of this work. And so you have all this fake paraphernalia, you know, receipts and reports and newspaper clippings, all of this stuff that does create a timeline, if you will. Ellie Kedward, I think she is the important one. She's the witch that turns the town of Blair into Burkittsville. Because we're told, and I don't remember exactly where I get all of this information, but in 1785, basically, we're told that she took kids home and took their blood. She was abducting children back then and was persecuted as a witch, was tied to a tree, was abandoned, and after she was thrown out of the village of Blair, more kids disappeared. So she started it all off. And I believe that when they're talking about a witch, this is who they're talking about. Yeah, I think it is. I think some of that story comes from other sources. It was made really explicit to me by that Curse of the Blair Witch mockumentary that aired on Sci-Fi back before it was spelled S-Y-F-Y. I watched a little bit of that. It did seem a lot of the same material that was in my dossier was also in that documentary. They probably wrote it and produced that at the same time. Yeah, and they embellished a lot of the story. What they had here were vague notions And it was supposed to all be a prank in their original imaginings. You know, those two fishermen they come upon who are telling some stories the second day. Yeah. Originally, they were going to have the older fisherman be the murderer. And he was going to come out at the end and said, I told you kids to stay out of these woods and kill them. I almost got that sense that that that's what they were going for. Like, he's like the Scooby-Doo villain. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't have worked. No. But I think that's why a lot of these reports in the film itself are so conflicting. I think it's a mistake. I mean, it's good for urban legend's sake to add a sense of verisimilitude and reality by having these people have these random ass stories. And some one guy's talking about this thing that happened in the 40s and something else is talking about the 1700s and somebody else is talking about a woman covered in horse fur from head to toe. But by the same token, while it leaves hooks that they will embellish upon later and try to form into a cohesive narrative, in this movie, all you know is there's townspeople who all have heard some weird story that 
again, for this movie, it's the tale of Par that matters because that's going to be what they discover at the end. They never discover a witch. I do like the vibe that you get these different accounts from the different townspeople. I mean, growing up, you ask anyone where I grew up, you say Mentryville. Like, it even sounds scary, Mentryville. Like, all it was was this oil boom town up in the mountains, and all that's left there is, like, this house that's, like, a historical site. But we'd always drive up there at night and freak ourselves out because, like, oh, there's an axe murderer there. This happened or that happened. Like, it, everyone had these different stories, and we'd freak each other out. You know, who could come up with the scary story about Mentryville? And I like that vibe here is you get that tall tale feeling, that legend feeling, that, that no one quite knows what happens, but there's something haunting this area with all these different stories again the, the film is only part of the experience that if you want the timeline you really have to build it from different sources who may or may not be telling you the truth what became clear once you look at it in total though is there is a pattern that is going on a historian of folklore basically points out to the private investigator in this book it seems to be happening about every 50 years. The witch comes back pretty closely, you know, sometimes with 40, sometimes 60 years. But basically every 50 years, there's an incident involving this witch almost from the inception of America. She has been around almost as long as America has been a country. So, yeah, 40 years after the Blair town has their kids missing because they banished this witch, then you have Eileen Treacle, who is this kid that 11 people see being dragged into a creek by a pale old woman. Then 50 years later, there's Robin Weaver who disappears for three days. She is found, but her search party ends up dead and disemboweled at Coffin Rock. Were they the ones who, like, their bodies were found and they went yes. to get the sheriff and when they came back, the bodies were gone, but you could still smell the bodies? Yeah, and they were all bound together. I was thinking human centipede for some reason with the way it described it. Yeah, no, I was too. It was head to foot. Yeah, Heather actually goes to Coffin Rock and reads that story on the second day. Yeah, that is uh, basically a hundred years after the witch had uh, initially attacked the kids. And then you have 50 years from that, this Robin Parr story you're talking about, which is the most recent one. So I think that's the one that people talk about more because they have more of a history. And the interesting thing about that, not only did yeah seven kids go missing, and we have the one guy that says the very important detail that one kid is pointed into the corner and the other one's brought in and killed. You also find out that that house burned when you look at this dossier, that it burned down, doesn't exist anymore. So the fact that this is going to get filmed, it almost guarantees that this what we're watching is supernatural, that there can be no explanation for what we are going to watch that it could happen in reality, unless the kids rebuilt that house. Where did the dossier come from? I... <laughs> the Santa Monica Library. Okay. I'm, I'm like, I bought the collector's edition set that came with everything. It was $9 on Amazon, and I didn't get a fucking dossier. No, you get no dossier with any DVD. This is a separate purchase that's out of print. But that man that wrote it, D.A. Stern, he has gone on, he's made a whole cottage industry out of this. I think he's written about four or five more additional Blair Witch books and novels. I think he even wrote an autobiography of the man that put the kids in the corner. And I mean, he really got into it. So I think he had a lot of fun putting together this timeline. He was hired by the film creators to fill in the gaps. And he, he does it quite well in this book. 
So it really is like the Star Wars Expanded Universe. You bring an author in, give him a jumble of stuff, and say, make it make sense. And he goes, oh, every 50 years. That's kind of close. We'll go with that. Yes. Does it expand my appreciation for the movie? Well, it informs it. I don't know that if you don't like this movie, you're going to like it after you read that. And, you know, we've all often made the point that you shouldn't have to read a book to enjoy a movie. But I think that everyone leaves this movie asking questions, and some of those questions are answered in this dossier. Well, getting into this film, though, I think that this can be taken as a single unit. This movie... I think there's a lot of conflicting stories in this first 20 minutes when they're talking to townies, but they're all telling a story of supernatural things that happened in the area back when this town was called Blair or now Burkittsville, but it's irrelevant for this story. Comprehension is irrelevant for this story. What this movie is, in my mind, is a tale not about a witch but about the emotional and mental breakdown of three unprepared film students who get lost in the woods. But without the supernatural element, that, that sounds a whole lot less fun. Yeah, for me, this is a ghost story. And whether the witch is the killer at the end or this other guy, like to me, it's can this movie scare me and turn the lights off at night and, and watch this and have a fun time being scared. And I get that vibe right away with all these townies and their different stories. So like Mary Brown coming out looking all crazy, telling about this lady covered in horse fur is really creepy. Yeah, I can't deny it that it's the casual. I mean, that is what found footage is good at, is it makes, by having the naturalism of the real world influence all the creative choices. You're not seeing someone do crazy things with lights or, you know, colors or motifs or anything. It just feels like raw. Anybody can do this documentary. Well, it starts convincing you that this horrific thing could exist in the same universe as you and I. I mean, it, it gives credence to legend and lore. I know one of the reasons why many people were turned off about this movie, though, is because these filmmakers are not very steady with the camera. And that I know some people that literally cannot watch this movie, not because of the content, not because it scares them, but because they get motion sickness. That the way that this camera is operated and whipped around, and it gets much worse as we get into the forest. But even early on here, when they're not setting up strategic shots in the graveyard or, you know, in the town, and, and I never saw a tripod. I don't know if they had one. But <laughs> this really is from the school that we're going to keep filming because we have a filmmaker that's obsessive about filming every aspect of her life, but they're not thinking about how the audience will experience that footage. I mean, this is shaky, drastically nauseating stuff for many people. Well, then I guess those people can't go on YouTube now either, because <laughs> I was fine with this. It was a little disorienting in theaters. It was a new experience for me, although I was watching ER, which was doing a lot of steady cam, rapid movements, but nothing quite this amateurish. This reminds me of like the 16 millimeter home movies my parents did in the 60s and 70s. But now having years of viral videos and camera phone shots, this is pretty much the norm. I, I'm fine with this. And, and I was even shooting stuff like this in the 80s with our first camcorder. I was used to amateur footage looking shaky and shitty. They don't have dollies. They don't have tripods. They're carrying it. I never heard of somebody getting sick, but then again, some people get sick playing a video game on a PS4. So I guess if you're sensitive enough, Anything will make you sick. No, I literally know people that vomited. Literally, they watched this and it was the same thing as being on a boat. 
It's seasickness. <laughs> well, I do feel like one of the things, if, if you're going to do the found footage thing, it has to be somewhat justified. Like, I, there's ones that I've watched where I'm like, come on, why would someone be filming this shot? Why would they be handing the camera over to this person so they could be seen? Like, i always thinking about that when I watch found footage, and I feel like with this film, yeah, when they're doing an establishing shot of Coffin Rock or Heather's going to read a passage very dramatically awful actress yes <laughs> i feel like the camera is somewhat still but yeah a lot of this is we're gonna have these cameras on the whole time and we're hiking of course it's gonna shake or they're gonna be drunk in a hotel room i am here then to defend poor heather donahue because you'll stand alone in the world not just on this show i'm happy to because i know she takes a lot of flack for this movie i think personally she was threatened after this movie i guess they blame her wow. for for the trick of it but I, I, she was up for a razzie they actually nominated her for worst actress for this quote-unquote performance it's brilliant she is a pretentious film student. You can see it in the twinkle in her eye. She thinks she is making the most important thing in the world. She is chewing up the scenery. Her bad performance is her character. This is a person that can't wait to exploit a local legend, which is a guess why she's going to lose her life to it. Well, no, I agree that when she's doing this monologue, she's intentionally bad. Although I don't know that she's intentionally bad, but it fits her character to be intentionally bad. And I do think she has some better scenes later on in the movie. Yeah, she cries on cue. Yes, but I think there are times, especially early on, when she's supposed to appear stressed and things, where it just isn't coming through. And again, she wasn't being given any direction, though. I believe a good actor needs a good director, not somebody who's literally 500 yards away, can't see you, and only has a walkie-talkie in case of emergency. No, I do think she does get better. Maybe it's from the exhaustion, and she's supposed to be acting exhausted. But early on, I, I mean, none of these actors are great. I, I do think they get better when they have to have mental breakdown. I think what it is is she's annoying and people perceive the fact that we hate her so much. And I do. I join them in that. She's really super annoying means that this is a bad performance, that it should be her job to endear herself to us. I don't think that that's the way that this was structured. I honestly, I don't have a problem with any of the characters or the characterizations, I should say. They're not characters. But what we see on screen, all of it feels very plausible to me. Those are people I've known before. And, you know, Josh, the guy that steals the camera from the film cage and has to have it back on Monday. I, I might have even been Josh once or twice. I mean, I know what that <laughs> is to, to have equipment you're not supposed to and you got to get it back clean. I mean, I couldn't believe they have a Nagra, which in, in 1994 is like... The dream to do the sound, that is high end. I mean, that's like taking, you know, a Mercedes out for a Sunday drive and then, you know, going through the mud puddles. I mean, I can't believe how much they put the equipment at risk crossing creeks and streams and what have you. I mean, if any of them had fallen in, you're telling me this is literally the equipment that's giving us the footage we're watching. Uh, if they had fallen in, that's the end of the movie. Yeah, they did say during their commentary when they're climbing over that log that if one of them had fallen in, they were done. 
That was the end. <laughs> That's exactly right. They would have no more footage because those cameras would not have sustained that. Actually, Josh, the 16 millimeter fell out of his backpack. And you'll notice there's a long period where we don't have much 16 millimeter footage. It's because they had to take it back to town and get it fixed. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but that is very funny. I, again, what an incredible risk these people took in doing this, even at a low budget. And I'm sorry, $20,000 is still $20,000. That's a lot of money to put in a risky thing. I, I feel, Stuart, you're more worried about the equipment than these three people because you know what this equipment is. <laughs> well, the equipment does come back. They find that. it's To me, it's a happy ending. I'm like, woof. Thank God the Niagara's going to get home. They got the dad back. <laughs> I'm sure it's water ruined, though. But hey, the dad actually wasn't even working by the end. I think they might have lost the dad. <laughs> but the people, again, I don't know that I like any of them. And certainly over time, they become quite irritating. I mean, it's not fun to watch people stress out at each other, but it's believable. And that's that's all it has to be. It just has to be believable. I have to believe these are real people in a really stressful situation. I never feel like we aren't watching that. Hell, they are real people in a stressful situation. They're just not entirely in the situation we think they're in. They're still out there wet and cold walking around for eight days. Look, I was a Boy Scout. I never got used to using a compass and map. That's hard stuff. <laughs> I, I understand why they got lost. I never got my, I don't know what merit badge it was, but whatever one where you have to do like map orientation or whatever. Never got that merit badge. I agree. Uh, without road signs, a map is useless. And let's also point out where they're headed is not exactly memorable. Without a big sign and arrow pointing to a pile of rocks, I would have kept walking right by them. Oh, this is important? I, I Who knows? The problem really is for me in this movie is that what's supposed to freak them out isn't really that scary. It's ominous because it hints at something unseen. You know, it's going from the notion that it's what's in the woods we don't see that's really going to get them. But watching Shaky Cam at a bunch of rocks and leaves, after a while, it does take its toll. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of buildup going on here. And it's fortunate that I also can relate to and actually, dare I say, I do like these three characters. First of all, they look like kids I went to college with. I mean, their style, their personalities, everything about them screams 90s to me. Especially, I mean, they were supposedly doing this in 1994. I went to college in 94. I hung out with a girl who acted a lot like Heather in this. And I roomed with a guy who looked a lot like Josh and kind of had that laid back attitude. So I was really kind of relating to them. Like these are some of my college friends out on a hike. Yeah, that's the appeal. That's it's one job is it has to have us connect and I'm connected. I just don't like them. I mean, I want to make that explicit and I want that distinction to be clear. I don't like them, but I recognize them and it brings back nostalgia and connects me to them nonetheless. Yeah, I don't know if I ever connect with them, but at least early on, I think you're right, Stuart, it goes on a bit long, but early on, I'm getting sucked in when they're fighting seven piles of rocks, and we know that there were seven boys that were murdered when they're interviewing the towns. Like, it is unsettling. There was something about those rock formations, and I remember after I watched this, stepdaughters were playing out in the yard and just piling rocks. They had no idea about this, and they made these piles like that. It freaked me out just to see that. It's something about getting sucked into this universe that's going to make it work or not work for you. If you're able to just get into it, 
it, you know, be the fourth member of this crew and try to experience what they're experiencing. I think that's what's going to make this film succeed or not succeed. And in a standard horror movie, you have so many tricks to build suspense. You can use music, you can use lighting, you can use composition, you can write it into the dialogue. There's so many ways to get you. With found footage, you only got one way. You were in tedium, our guard is down, and then all of a sudden, almost just effortlessly, something weird floats up and we, we get a shiver. And I think that's what found footage does. It doesn't make us jump, it doesn't make us scream, it gives us a shiver. To me, it always helps to put me in the film. The key is, as Jacob said, my belief that people would actually be filming this. And Blair Witch does it best of any found footage film I've ever seen through the character of Heather just being so obsessive about filming. I like that they have the obligatory scene of turn the camera off and why the camera is on. And there's a scene where Josh takes the camera from her and says, I see why you like filming this now. It's so detached reality. That wasn't scripted. They weren't told to do that. That was all improv. But it makes this film able to sell this to me. So it adds a level of actual reality versus a slick third-person perspective that we've seen before. Also, the fact that these are actually the actors doing it, and there's not actually a cinematographer who's simulating being one of the actors and all of that, I, I think that adds something. They're not trying to do slick camera tricks here like they would in, say, Chronicle or something. I'm just surprised the film is exposed. I mean, Josh must have some history with loading, or, or they must have broken every time they needed to change the reels, because that stuff's not easy to do. There was no one there to help him break. They did not break character unless there was like, they had a safe word, taco. Yeah, you'd have to. What if someone got really hurt? <laughs> you'd have to stop the movie and say, hey, real blood, help me out. They have to have safe words. Yeah, one time they missed their drop and actually wandered out of the woods. They were never deep in the woods and they wandered out and they're like, oh shit, we're not even in the woods anymore. No, this park is very small. Yeah, so they ended up staying at a hotel and going back the next day and picking back up again. And that's something that the dossier makes clear, is that we're going to see them wander around for seven days. There is a search party that is out there at, at day four, day five. There are hundreds of people walking through that forest looking for them. Again, supernatural. You can only conclude one thing. The fact that these kids were not found was because they had a spell on them. I guess you can do it, right? I guess you could tell yourself watching this movie, it might be that some of these locals heard them talking about this witch and decided to get them. But who does that, really? No, I never thought that was a possibility. Yeah, I always thought there was something supernatural going on. It's a trope. I mean, God help me, but the first instance I can think of is Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, where they're driving through the town and they <laughs> end up right back where they started. I think I saw that in a lot of Scooby-Doo cartoons <laughs> as a kid. And here they're walking and they walk past a log. They end the day, they're right back at the log. They didn't know they were going to be there. And with the rock and all of that and I'm looking at this every time I watch it and I've seen it you know quite a few times when they accidentally knock over the pile of rocks I'm like oh shit they just Josh does that is that the reason uh -huh. why he goes first actually the reason he goes first is because in the middle of shooting they changed the script it was supposed to be Mike who went first and then they're like eh Mike and Heather have a better dynamic Josh you're out <laughs> but, but I was taking it as that's why he did it is because he knocked over the rocks they did some stuff in editing. They had Heather from California do some ADR and whatnot. We don't see her say that. So they could have taken some footage and added dialogue of Josh, you knocked over the rocks and helped set that up. 
that's what I take it as, is Josh desecrated yes. these things. And Heather steals one of the artifacts she finds. I mean, these kids, if you go to the old trope of in a horror film, kids sin and that's why they die. Josh knocks over the sacred rocks, Heather steals, and Mike, dumb fuck, kicks away the map. Yeah. The one thing, the the one piece of dialogue that never has worked for me in this, you know, I'm getting scared. I like the noises at night. It's when they try to, I don't, I don't know if they're trying to get deep, but they're like, this is America. You can't get lost in America these days. We, we've destroyed our natural resources. We'll run into the road at some point. Like that is the one thing that doesn't work for me. Yeah. I love that line. Oh. I love it too. I actually, it's one of my favorites. It's, it's so true. It seems so forced. If you're not in Yellowstone, you cannot get lost. You walk for a few days. It would comfort me. If I were in this situation, it would comfort me to know that this park couldn't be very big because we're always tearing down trees to build more houses. And again, it, it's not like the directors were saying, hey, let's put an environmentalist statement here. This guy was saying it, and I think it's true. I think that- It's Heather. Heather's doing it. She's the drama queen anyway. I mean, everything that she says is over the top. Yeah, she might have come up with it just for the sake of the documentary to make it seem profound. Although this stuff isn't the documentary, right? She's taping not because she thinks she'll make it into the movie. She's taping because she's obsessive. I mean, I think that that is her sin more than anything she says or does. It's the fact that she's a filmmaker, right? I mean, this is a statement about filmmaking and, and needing to document everything. I take it differently. I take it as the filmmakers equated her to Captain Ahab. Anything Blair Witch, she was going to film even at her own risk and at the risk of her team. She wants the world's best Blair Witch documentary, and so she will put herself and her crew in danger to film it. But then during the non-supernatural scenes, I think she is filming for the reasons that Josh accuses her of. It keeps her detached. She's used to seeing things through the lens. She can make believe it's a movie if mm. she sees it through the lens. That's interesting. So that's my taking. Yeah, I think you're right. I, that seems to make sense. Yeah. I do love her characterization in this, though, because she's the director. She's a student filmmaker. That's, you know, like being the head of the student body. But she's out there and she's giving these orders. She doesn't know how to fucking read the map, but she is not going to ask for help. She is going to try to remain in control. And these guys, they call her out on it, but she just stands there. I mean, she has the other deadly sin of vanity in all of this. Yeah, I mean, it was her responsibility. She scouted out the thing. Theoretically, if you believe she scouted out the thing. Yeah, what are you scouting out? Did she find all these rock formations before? Yeah, yeah, no, she absolutely did. And I believe this because I read her proposal to her film teacher in the dossier. I mean... Her fictional proposal yeah, for yeah. this fictional character. Yeah, well, yes, that's what I'm saying. The quote-unquote character, they go to great lengths. The dossier is less good at telling us the supernatural and more at good at proving what was done, which is to say that it discounts the idea that she would have gone out there without doing her research. We see very clearly that she knew the area. She grew up in that area. She knew what she was going to do. The fact that she got lost means it was a spell. It wasn't her fault. You know, that doesn't come out because of the way they have to use the cameras that these three have. I, I think it comes out in the film, though. It's never explicit. But the fact that these characters at different times seem to be going mad Mike, it seems to be going crazy at first. And then Josh, they all start acting erratically on different days. Like, I definitely feel like they've gone after secret knowledge here. And that, that is the crime. They went after knowledge that they should not be seeking. And they're going crazy for that. It, it's very Lovecraftian in that way. 
I never took it that way, Jacob. But here's where the horror of this works for me, because you talk about these supernatural elements. We hear the stories in the beginning, and I think there's a couple too many. I think that 20 minute drags. But then when we start getting in here, they're setting up this stuff, but the tensions between the group are growing. And it's the interpersonal dynamics that I'm finding interesting. And are they going mad because they're seeking forbidden knowledge? Or are they getting upset and frustrated because they're literally lost in the woods and they're digging their own holes deep? The true horror of this film for me is not fear that they're going to be attacked by a ghost. But when I saw this in theaters, I felt chills. And it was a lot of it was like when they're accusing each other of who has the map. And then Mike finally admits in a burst of mad laughter that when they weren't looking, he kicked the map in the river because he didn't know how to read the map. So he thought it was useless. We knew at least Josh knew how to read the map. That is chilling to me that these guys could do as much damage to each other as any supernatural witch or murderer in the woods could. When the end rolls, I don't really believe Josh could be the killer, but I also think that's a possible interpretation. Yeah, we've knocked their acting, but when they start going mad or hungry or starving or whatever, I get those chills. When Josh is losing and he's like, you gonna write us a happy ending, Heather? You gonna write us a happy ending like that is scary that is someone just barely holding on to their sanity but it's also such a poignant line to what they're going through because heather has wanted to control this whole production and they're begging her to get them out of this you know i guess i just never really saw it this way because it's supernatural because something is being done to them i don't see it as her fault when she does her teary apology and all that i'm like hey it ain't you chick it would have happened anyway and i don't blame mike either i mean he made the point Point, the reason why he kicked away the map was not just because he couldn't read it, it's because he saw Heather trying to read it and it didn't change the fact that they would walk for 14 hours and never get to the car. I mean, the map would not have saved them. They would never have been saved by any of this stuff. The witch had already made her plan to get them. Possibly, but we saw on day one, before they ever pissed off a witch, that Heather got lost. I think Heather was not a very good cartographer and that her control freak attitude prevented her from asking Josh, who did know how to read a map, for assistance. But you don't think that if she had been better or if these people had been better people, they would have found a way to get out? Earlier, yes. Later, no. I mean... Once they disturb that grave, yes. I think that's it's over for them. Yes, I agree with that. That's it. They're marked people. And they are marked. They wake up the next morning outside their tent are three piles of rock. Three graves for them. Oh, that is so scary. That See, I, I've been sucked into this film. And when I see that, I get chills. And they're just rocks. That doesn't give me chills. That I find eerie. But I'll tell you, I, again, I think I've said this on a previous show. There was like a study about the sounds that are most disturbing to the human psyche. And like a baby crying is one of them. We are genetically programmed, or perhaps it's nurture, not nature. But that a baby crying puts us on edge because we want to care for young. It's just in our nature to protect the young so that they can grow up. It's, you know, the biological imperative of reproduction. And this film, as they get more and more lost and do more and more infighting, there's so much shouting and crying and screaming that it just puts you on edge. There's no way to pay attention to this film and have an immersive experience. If you're just watching this on TV while you clean the house, it's probably going to just be that much noise. But if you sit in a darkened room, be it on a 24-inch TV or in a movie theater, subjecting yourself to this, the sheer acridness of their relationship 
gets under my skin and creates a tension that then heightens things when they find little sticks hanging from trees. But nothing scares me as much as that fucking bundle of twigs. Oh my God. Oh, of course. Yes. When I was in theaters and I'm like, oh my fucking God, it's a bloody tooth. Josh is dead. And it's bundled with the flannel of his shirt, I believe. Yes. It's shown so briefly. And it's just there to tease you and make you see what you want to see. But yeah, that was the one thing. The little guys hanging from the trees, the pile of rocks, nothing. But that bundle with some fresh blood and teeth, that was the one thing that uh, supernatural that I'm like, oh, shit. And what really helps sell it is because they've really gone out of their way to shoot this like they were really shooting this. If this was a standard horror film, it would have really lingered on that bundle and you'd seen the blood and the teeth like this. It's a pretty quick shot because, yeah, why would you keep the camera on that if this was happening to you in real life? There is something psychological about the way this is shot that helps you put yourself behind that camera as if you were there. Okay, and I'll offer a counter perspective on this. This is a part where I'm starting to get annoyed with the movie when we have an extreme close-up on a bundle of twigs and it's shaking around and i'm having trouble looking at anything i'm like i I don't want to watch this this is irritating i'm not feeling the stress of the situation i'm feeling the stress of trying to make sense of what's being shown in whip pans in my face i feel like the tension on this movie goes out for the first 40 minutes it's really strong, but it's actually the moment where they get to those yeah, dangling twig men, which do not look scary in the slightest. They look rigged. I feel the air is starting to seep out of this balloon, and I do feel wow. that for a good 15, 20 minutes, they're lost in the woods, metaphorically, as well as literally, they don't know what they're doing, and they don't know how to escalate the tension. Wow, I'm watching the exact polar opposite movie than you, because for the first 40 minutes, my patience is coming close to being tried. But as the stuff starts to ratchet up, as their interpersonal arguing gets higher, as Josh disappears, the movie's fear ramps up. I follow their emotional journey. I start completely complacent and watching them as they're going through their everyday activities. And the more panic they get, the more uptight I get the more I am following this movie with them. I enjoy the 79th minute much more than the 29th minute. I think I'm somewhere in between. I I do think, Arnie, that you're right. Things do get more tense. I like the escalations of the sounds at night. You know, at first, only one of them hears like these crunching sounds, twigs breaking. Then the next night, they all hear it. And then it's like, what, children crying for help. And then Josh disappears and you can hear him. And it's it's the way that the sound is all around them. They never know which way to walk. I get absorbed into this. I, I think, yeah, those sticks people that they have hanging in the trees that doesn't really scare <laughs> no. me but that, those bloody twigs does it for me man that that freaked me out yeah yeah that and i like not seeing it like there's one point in the middle of the night when they're hearing those sounds and they start fleeing and what our camera is showing us is heather running ahead of us and then she sees something and she's like what is that and i'm right there with her yeah what the fuck is it show me show me but they're not showing me and that makes it even scarier than showing me twigs hanging from a tree yeah a lot of this is there's not minutes but there are long periods of time 30 seconds of just black screen where they have the 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 cameras are pointed down or whatever they're afraid to turn the lights on because it's night and they don't want to attract whatever is out there and you just hear the screaming yeah a a haunted house experience is the right way to describe this but that doesn't make this any less effective at being a scary movie 
And one of the things I do love, it's not a technical trip that they planned, but it ends up feeling like a directorial choice, is that sometimes sound can be disassociated. Because sound is recorded on video at the same time, we hear that as the sounds of the filmmaker. So when they're cutting back and forth between the 16 millimeter, which doesn't have sound, you don't put a sound unless you have a a special roll of film, which they did not have, uh, you're not putting sound directly onto the film. It's not matching up. That sound is coming from the video camera. So sometimes we can be seeing what the character is doing with the 16 millimeter, but they sound very, very far away. They're going to use this to excellent effect in the climax of the film, but it also happens here with that chase scene. And I do think that that is a really creepy happenstance. I'll call it a, a happy accident. Yeah, at times they use that DAT recorder for the 16 millimeter. Yeah, that's what you would use. But yeah, in other times they just use the camcorder audio for that and it really gives it a spooky distant effect to see something up close but hear it far away. It's a pioneer of this. I know other films have done it since. I don't know that any film has ever had the impact, maybe because it was first, maybe because it was best maybe because their camera work is improv along with the entire story being improv it creates a magical happy place for found footage that when you storyboard it out and you're simulating this and trying to recreate it either to save money or to hop on the latest trend instead of because the story demands it that you just lose all of the raw feeling that this comes through with we have reviewed a lot of horror movies on now playing None feel as real as The Blair Witch Project. That includes Diary of the Fucking Dead. Well, that was a terrible film. <laughs> well, come on, Arnie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about the only other horror found footage movie we've reviewed. Yeah, let's. if we watched another one, Arnie, it would be better than Diary of uh, the Dead. I mean, it, pick a film, throw a rock, you're going to hit a better film. You got about 15 paranormal activity films you could choose. <laughs> I'm I'm merely saying it's not because it's found footage alone. I'm saying it's because it's found footage done this way in this film. Yeah, you know what? All found footage, I think, struggles to reach feature length. And for me, that's certainly true here. But the high highs are tense. I mean, I do feel, particularly on first viewing, subsequent viewings, I think it does diminish. I mean, I think when you know what's going to happen and what you are and aren't going to see, you can't help but feel the impact lessen upon repeat viewings. You're not rewatching this movie to feel the fear again. You're trying to see maybe what the story is and connecting it to the lore. But there are gaps where I'm really on edge and there are long stretches, particularly in the second half, where I'm disengaged and I'm just annoyed by pretentious kids that are screaming in the woods. And you see, it's that screaming. When Josh disappears, I mentioned the baby crying. The equivalent here is Heather. Josh! Josh! I mean, that goes on so long and it puts me so on edge. And I agree with you. I hadn't watched this film in probably 10 or more years before watching it for this film. And... It did kind of like recharge. It was the second best it had ever been for me this time. The first being in theaters. When The more I watched it, the more I remembered specifics, the less impact it had. But that screaming coming through just hit me at a 
subconscious level to create an emotion in me that I am helpless but to succumb to. Even though I know everything that's going to happen, I can sing along in sync with some of her Josh screams. I'm still on edge. Uh, it gets me back by the end. I'll give you that. I It just sounds like you're more into this movie in the second half than I'll ever be. But uh, I, I've always felt that the ending was very effective. It does take a little too long to get there. After Josh disappears, I love the search for Josh. I don't think there should be, like, an entire other day. <laughs> no. I, they had to get the seven, right? Seven days, seven kids. They're, they're doing stuff with numerology, and I feel like they just wanted a, a full week to pass before the witch claims them. And I do really enjoy Heather's... You know, it's the iconic thing with the snot coming out of her nose. It was in every trailer. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to give her props for lack of vanity to do this. She never wipes her nose. Yeah, you, you could see nose hairs, everything there. <laughs> yeah, this does not make you think she's a hot actress when she's wearing a freaking stocking cap and letting snot run down her nose and tears run out of her eyes. It's... You're right. She is able to cry, be it because she's been out in the cold woods and wet woods for eight days or because she has found a place inside of her as an actress to do this. This is a good final speech. This is her last redemption before what I'll presume to be her death. And while you may think it's not her fault, I think this is her basically going to confession before dying. Her last confession there, getting the final rites. Only her priest is the camera. And maybe that's why I'm not touched by this goodbye. I'm touched that someone knows they're about to die and is, is saying goodbye to their parents. I just don't believe that she's responsible for this. Because she made this project happen, I don't think that's a sin. Uh, you know, these guys agreed to do it. They went with their own volition. I, I don't feel like it's her responsibility that they're all dead or missing or whatever. I just don't believe she scouted it out. She's telling them there's trails where there's not. She's full of shit. I get the feeling she cut corners, was egotistical, thought it would all be okay because she's in charge, and it came out from under her. And that's why I feel it's her fault. You don't think that the witch was doing things to make them not get to the car? After a certain point. But not day one. All right, so it's her fault on day one. Day three through seven, not her fault. She let him in there on false pretense. She didn't really scout it. Boy, you're just not cutting Heather a break, but okay. No, I think that all of them are somewhat at fault for various things. I think that the witch had power. I don't know that the witch was completely inescapable if you had competent people working together. But because of the infighting, the map throwing, and her, you know, what is that uh, thing about poor planning and performance? I mean, she's just not a good manager. And you keep talking about the witch. We don't get the witch at the end here. I, the first time watching this, I am waiting for that reveal and this is going to go in a different direction. But that's the brilliance of it. I mean, 70% of the appeal of this movie is the way that it leaves you. And, you know, going into that house, the bloody handprints, we are remembering that story from long ago, we're back in civilization, where people were laughing and remembering this old folklore, and now it is real before us. It has come true, and the only thing we don't know is what's going to be awaiting them when they finally catch up with Josh's voice in the basement. Are they drawn? Is that 
Josh's voice? Yes. Are they drawn into that house? Because I would not be going into that house if I found it. They hear Josh. Yes. And so that's why they go in. And again, is that a ghostly from the afterlife, Josh? Is Josh waiting in there to kill them for getting him lost in these fucking woods? There's a lot of interpretations, but it did take me multiple viewings or actually more internet research, because I only saw this once in theaters, to fully understand this ending. Because... There's so many stories in the beginning that on one watching and without a dossier and without a sci-fi special <laughs> and without a video game, I remember the woman covered in horse hair a lot more than I remember a story about a boy standing in a corner. Really? Oh, no, I remember that story, but this seems to be like there's ruins in there. I thought that was a different story where they found these runes painted maybe in blood. See, I'm just making up legends now from what I remember the townie folks talking about, but it, it does seem like they're starting to combine some of the legends in this final scene. I just think I remember walking into the theater and talking about it with people and they're like I don't know why he was in the corner I'm like wasn't there something about being in the corner and that's when they killed him and we just all collectively shivered at the same time we were all like oh <laughs> I mean you you remember it when you reflect on the movie you don't know in the moment I'll give you the moment is happening so fast we're so disoriented cutting back between the 16 millimeter and the video all we know is that we're heading towards something scary and certain death but reflecting on the movie 20, 30, an hour later, it all comes back to you. It's a simple story. It didn't come back to me about the corner, but something else that happened to me on first viewing, and I kind of got it this time, I can see what I saw. I thought he was hanging. The way it shot, we only get a glimpse of him in the corner for a second at most before Heather's camera falls to the ground too, and we just get a close-up of dirt. And I thought he was, like, floating. Remember, they talked about the woman whose feet didn't touch the ground. It's such a dark shot and such a quick shot. I didn't get him as, like, being in the corner punished. I thought he might be floating. I was like, what the fuck happened to Mike? And then Heather gets knocked from behind. So that also aided to my confusion as to what happened until I was able to research the various stories from the past and got the corner standing thing and realized, okay, so he's not floating in midair. Yeah, he will be killed next, presumably. I mean, if that legend is even true, yes, he is next in line. And as soon as uh, whoever, whether it be the witch herself or the possessed man from the 1940s. Or the fisherman or Josh. Yeah, I, you know, again, there's too many have to be supernatural things for me to, to give that any credence. I just don't see that as a possibility, particularly when you read the supplemental material. Well, of course, they don't want it to be in the supplemental material, but... Yeah, did they know, though? Did these actors who knew they were playing characters going off into the woods, who may not have realized they were going to be attacked by a witch or a threat, did they know their this was the curtain call, that this was the end of their movie? They knew it was the last day. This was filmed in chronological order. I think this ending, based upon the stories I've heard, was evolving during the shoot. Mm -hmm. And the actors were intentionally kept in the dark. They got information and packets that, that day that said, okay, you have a real compass. You are to walk west today, and you will see a marker at the place you're supposed to stop again. And what happens in between happens in between. Yeah, they'd have to have told Josh to be like, you're getting out of the tent tonight. You can't be there the next morning. 
Right. They told him that and they had to keep him around to scream into speakers because they were really hearing him. They did not know what they would find when they followed that voice. Mm -hmm. Josh could have been standing there. They were piping it in through speakers, though. So how much they knew here at the end, I'm guessing this was pretty staged. Standing in the corner and all that. I'm guessing of all this film, this ending here is the single most staged thing. Perhaps this is the one thing not even filmed by the actors themselves. Who knows? It wasn't in-depth in that regard. Their director's commentary was meandering at best. But it is a very effective ending and a hell of a note to end on. But Stuart, you said that you have trouble with found footage hitting running length. I think they had that trouble too, because once this happens, the credits start. There's not that many names in the credits. It's a $25,000 film. So I wondered why the names were staying there so goddamn long. Well, it's not quite (laughs) Jonah Hex bad, but they had to stretch the credits to almost four minutes to hit feature length on this thing. Mm, Yeah, it's a short movie. But then again, I didn't want it to be longer. I didn't want to watch no two and a half hour cut. And they had it. There is more story to tell. The dossier makes clear that the search party gave up after a week of this. And that, yes, one year later, I think one of the creepiest details gets undersold, but this footage is found in that house or the burned remnants of that house underneath the house. Again, there's no other way to explain this. It has to be supernatural. This footage was buried beneath a structure that hadn't been disturbed for, you know, over 50 years. And man, I wonder what the story is. Has it been done? What the story is of who found it or yes. or how? That Yeah, that's in the dossier too. They have a program at the same college that Heather was for archaeology. And I'm like, well, why would you have archaeology in Maryland? <laughs> well, actually, there's a good reason. This area was strategically important for the Civil War. And they were out there looking for Civil War relics and remnants. And that's why they dug it up. They weren't looking for Heather. I didn't even catch that. I know it was mentioned a little bit on the TV show. They also mentioned that the families weren't happy with the law enforcement investigation and they had private eyes looking for these kids. They had interviews with the families and girlfriends and such. But in the end, uh, the general consensus is law enforcement was ineffective, didn't do their job right, and that also may have added to this. Although, if the witch was preventing people from getting in there, then there's nothing that could have been done anyway. That's my takeaway, is that there's nothing any human being could do once Ellie had made her choice, but the mother would continue on, and she hired a psychic. They would go back to these ruins. This book is pretty long. It's about 200 pages. There's a lot of information there. I don't know how much more you learn, but it's kind of fills in the details. And it gets us back to Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, that the mother actually reaches out to them once she gets ownership of the footage. The police sit on it for years. But in 97, she gets this footage and she hands it to them and says, you cut it down into something that makes sense. Oh, it wasn't magically edited, by the way. No, no, not magically edited. It was raw footage. Oh, I thought maybe that was the case. No, 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 no. It's raw footage, like nine reels of film and 12 high eight tapes. The cutting was done by human beings. The filmmakers are calling themselves characters in this dossier by saying that they came in and took this raw footage and made it the movie we just watched. 
And while your expanded universe material went forward, they did dig into this backstory more with the video games. Now, they came out a, over a year later, actually after Blair Witch 2 even came out. They started in October, and they it was a weird release schedule. I remember this. I was so into video games at this point. I had a website called ReviewGames.com. I was reviewing every game in a game franchise, all the King's Quests, all the Gabriel Knights, and... I was also really into the movie tie-in games. They had these really cheap, like video games were about 50, 60 bucks back then for PC. These were cheap. I think they were 10 to $20. And there were three parts. They were released just a few weeks apart from each other. Part one was early October. Part two was late October. Part three was November. Hmm. Any good? No. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Catch the witch and burn her? Yeah, I can't imagine any fun to be had. Was it like a first person? Like It was Resident Evil. It yeah. was survival horror. Okay. So it wasn't first person, but like Resident Evil, especially the old ones, where the camera angle changes based upon where you're standing, and you only have so many bullets and zombies are coming after you and all of that. And the volumes weren't sequels to each other. Each one explored a different era of the Blair Witch Mythos. The first one, which the controls were so shitty. I couldn't play this back then. I actually loaded it up. It still runs under Windows 10 miraculously. And the controls still suck. So the first one was talking about Rustin Parr. It had, takes place after he's already been arrested. It actually combines the mythology of Blair Witch with the mythology of a game called Nocturne, which is the... Basically, this was a mod for Nocturne. They just created oh. new levels for Nocturne. Okay. And some of the minor characters for Nocturne are who you play. You play a female Doc Holliday who's a supernatural investigator, like a early 20th century X-Files type thing. Okay. And she goes to investigate the witch's involvement in Rustin Parr, and it turns out that it's a Native American demon called Hecatomics. I'm guessing, I'm getting this from Wiki because I couldn't play it this far <laughs> then or now. Hecatomics. Uh, okay. Sounds a little shaky here. Yeah, so it has nothing to do with Ellie or any of that. It's investigating the spirit that caused Rust and Parr. And what it explains also is it's Hecatomics that also inhabited Ellie Kedward. So this spirit is even older than the witch. Uh, okay, I'll stick to the movie. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, <laughs> and I think we've seen this in many things, the more you try to explain an ambiguous and frightening event, the worse you make it for yourself. Yeah, the second one's all about Coffin Rock taking place during the Civil War. Okay. That was where the girl went missing for three days and the guys that looked for her got disemboweled. Yeah, you play a soldier who is psychologically damaged and having flashbacks of his own past while investigating this missing girl. Okay, so basically, it sounds like they filled in the details by stealing from other prototypes of games. Yeah, and the third one was finally Ellie Kedward. And according to the reviews, I never got to part three because I couldn't beat part one. But they say they got worse, and part one was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's encouraging. Yeah, and I bring up the video games now because they have absolutely nothing to do with the Blair fucking Witch 2, which we'll talk about next week. But for this week, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the Blair Witch Project? Jacob. You know, I said 
I'm glad I did watch this a year ago, that this wasn't really my first time because this movie as a movie where you sit down with your now playing glasses and you sit there and you write notes about every line given and you keep track of plotting and acting, it would have been a not recommend. That that was a miserable experience trying to watch this as a now playing review. When I watched it a year ago around Halloween, where that's usually the time where I'll pull out some horror movies because it's Halloween and, you know, you get scared, you turn off the lights. But that's what I did. You know, watch this in a dark house late at night. You let your imagination run. And that's when this movie really does work. And you get absorbed by it. You get into the film and the rocks scare you and, and these characters and their screams and the noises you hear. It is an experience. I, I don't want to go all EU. It sounds like from your descriptions that you guys gave, I, I don't go EU with Star Wars and I like Star Wars. And so I, I like this movie though. It, it scares me. And I think that it's successful at that, you know, talking more about it as a film, like a found footage film. I think it's one of the better ones that I've seen. It, it justifies the way it is shot. I, I feel like it, it's pretty natural the way it's shot and the way it's presented in this movie. So yeah, watch this. Don't sit there and try to analyze it. This is about getting absorbed into the film, which it does a really good job pulling you into its world and getting scared. And it's going to scare you. It's There's even times tonight where we've talked about certain scenes where I got some chills. Like There's just unsettling things, and that works for a horror film i think that is a, a big component of being a good horror film so yeah and like you said arnie watch this like once every 10 years i i think that's a good way to do it so yeah a solid recommend for the blair witch project Stuart, i'm gonna second that i do think this movie is a strong example of what found footage can do when it's really working and i think a lot of times I think actually all the time found footage struggles to reach feature length, but I think a lot of times you watch this footage and you're getting nothing out of it. Here, the editors, the, the combination of the actors and the situation that they've been put in and contrived by the filmmakers, all of it really... I mean, I think it helps that we're in the woods. You know, woods are scary, period, flat out. I go out to camping one evening. There's a reason why so many horror movies are set in them. There's something primal and scary about them. And there's something great about creating an urban myth. We want to participate in that. It's part of the fun to believe. I mean, who wants to celebrate Christmas and not believe in Santa Claus. I mean, we want to believe in this Blair Witch, and we want to believe that the footage is going to tell us that there is a creature out there that can do this. I think this movie has a real charm to it, as well as creates some really good suspense. But I do think it is a stunt. I do think at the end of the day, I would put it more on the shelf with like Orson Welles' radio broadcast of War of the Worlds than I would with Exorcist or Alien or some of those what I would call horror movie classics. I just, I don't feel it has repeat viewings. I think that's the bottom line. It's a great horror movie you can watch again and get scared by again. This movie, you can, it can only scare you once. And I did appreciate watching it again. I think it has been the first time since I saw it in theaters in 1999. But I do feel like, unlike some of the truly great horror movies, it doesn't hold up on second viewings as well because it is so predicated on the surprise of the first viewing. But which is not to take away anything from it. Everyone should see it once. It's a solid recommend. And I remember being in theaters and seeing this. And again, the theater wasn't dead empty, but it was fairly empty. And I've described on previous shows seeing films in my theater. You don't make eye contact with anybody else except the person you came with. If you're with another guy, there's the seat in between, assuming the theater's not packed. There's not a whole lot of 
comments or unfortunately young people will talk and text. But when this movie ended, the lights came up and this guy, probably early 50s, just stood up and said, well, they must be pretty goddamn desperate to put a piece of shit like that on the screen and walked out. <laughs> Boy, I hate when somebody does that. That, that <laughs> happened to me to another movie we're about to review in just a couple weeks. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? I enjoyed the hell out of this. I really did. This was a totally new experience for me back then. But in the time since, found footage has become used and abused and is one of my personal pet peeves. I can't think of a found footage film that I've seen that I would really endorse. And coming back to Blair Witch, I kind of figured that maybe it was something that got me in the moment. It became a phenomenon. I got swept up in the hype. That's why I bought the video games and the action figures. It was as much the hype as it was the feeling this movie gave me. And when I saw this, this was perhaps the first horror movie in a long time to put me on edge. I had seen so many slashers and paranormal films and, you know, the ones that weren't trying to be scary, like the Jason films and the ones that were trying to be scary. And then the ones in between, like Scream. Horror was really still in not too great a spot. And when I saw Blair Witch, I wasn't frightened, but I was unnerved. And that is a great thing. So the question is, did the film hold up? I was surprised that it really did. Having some distance from it, having not seen it since the early 2000s, going back to it, I can still really appreciate what it accomplished. I like what it teases. And now that I really don't like, I'll, I, I'll use the word hate, found footage films. I wondered if I could give this one a pass. And I can, because it's truly filmed by the actors. It's not fake found footage. This really was running gun, the actors doing the shooting, versus Maniac, where you have a cameraman and Elijah Wood tied together at the hip like that Fairly Brothers film stuck on you. Although I want to make clear that that movie is much, much better than this one. True. but it, And it's not really found footage. It's first person. Yeah, yeah. Don't muddy the waters here. You're You're talking yeah. about stuff like... As above, so below. Yeah. Dim Night, The Visit. You're talking about films I haven't seen because they were found footage, but VHS. And... I like VHS. It was fine. I don't think I'd recommend it. Things like Cloverfield, VHS, all of Diary of the Dead. <laughs> I just don't buy their conceits. And here, they sell it to me. I think it's the pioneer. I think it remains the best. It's a solid recommend. And it was the excitement about this film that got me opening weekend to take Marjorie to theaters. We were dating in 2000 to go see The Blair Witch Project 2. Oh, wow. It came out the next year, so they did not waste any time capitalizing on it. And it was your excitement that convinced me I needed to go to the movie theater as well. After you returned from that film, you said, I didn't have a lot of money at that Ooh. time. But I remember like, <laughs> you got to see this one. And I did. So we'll be talking about I it. I have not seen it, so no spoilers. Mm, I don't know that you can. It's a weird one. It is. Uh, we'll talk about it next week. But if you can't wait for more witches, we do have them on Friday in one of the four rooms that also has Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino in it. Yeah, four directors, four shorts, one movie, all connected by Tim Roth? Okay. <laughs> Never thought of him as a man to carry a film, but we'll find out if he can. This is part of our platinum donation series where you get every film 
really associated with Tarantino as a creative impetus. We're not doing Destiny Turns on the Radio or Sleep With Me, but our silver level donation is six podcasts, Battle Royale, and then starting in November, the Hunger Games retrospective leading up to Mockingjay Part 2. Will we be liking it or will we be mocking it? We'll find out. For the gold level donation, the nine films directed by Quentin Tarantino. We've already released Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs in the gold series. And then we'll be getting back to the gold level podcast in December with Jackie Brown. But for platinum, a donation of $35 or more, we've already released True Romance, one of my favorite films period, let alone in this retrospective or that we've discussed this year. We've released Natural Born Killers, and yes, Four Rooms is next. And then next week, a good Halloween movie from Dusk Till Dawn, some vampires. All the details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me, and until next week, where am I going? (laughs) The fuck away from you. about today guys? Very good day. Very good first day. Let's be relaxed because we've got a really, really long day tomorrow. Today was cake compared to tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's fucking done, man. It's fucking done. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help out our show by leaving us a five-star written review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I knew where we were going. Wait, 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 wait. Would that be a full-of-shit statement? No, I didn't. Would that be a full-of-shit statement? All I'm saying is that you got us lost, man. Also at our site, you can find more movie reviews, including The Shining, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Insidious, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, The Avengers Films, James Bond, and more. Newsflash, everybody. That was just a movie, all right? Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. I'm going to make movies, Heather. You know what we're here to do? Movie. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. We gotta take care of each other. I know that. I know you know. I, I know, know that. I know we're both about to lose. Okay. Let's try and get the last wits again. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. There's no one here to help you. There's no one here to help Josh! you. There's no one here to help you. That's your motivation. That's your motivation. Now Playing's Blair Witch Project retrospective series is edited by Arnie. Want a hand? I want amphetamines. Weed is what I've got. Beer I'm going to get. Both. Now. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. No, but you're going around doing your thing, man. You're still doing your fucking thing. Don't fuck it and turn the goddamn thing off! Blair Witch Project films are the property of Haxon Films and Artisan Entertainment, and no infringement is intended. Yeah, it's a story my grandmother used to tell us all. Makes good a bit early. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. So I'm just putting 
my uh, trust in you that you know it's... Although I gotta tell you, I don't fully trust you. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Stop taping! Please stop taping! Okay. Okay, 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 we're leaving right now. Okay. Okay, we're out of here. We're out of here, I'm leaving. There's not a whole lot of comments or... Unless it's Captain America 2. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wasn't in Springfield. That was in St. Louis. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, let me look at what what are some of the ones I've seen and hated. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know that. Chronicle. Uh, I already said Chronicle once, so... Well, uh, wasn't there oh, one on the moon? Um, Apollo 18. I didn't see that one. Oh, you didn't see it? Okay. All right, here, here's the ones I've got. Um... Oh, God, what's that one called? It's on the tip of my tongue. It's not even on this list. Uh, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. Okay, it's because there's so many goddamn ones. Okay, Cloverfield, VHS. God, there's so goddamn many. But you haven't seen most of them. No, but the ones I've seen, I hate. I've seen the ones that are considered the best, and I don't like them. Um, Paranormal Activity? I haven't seen that one. Well, maybe we will. Um, you've How many are there? What you've told no, me. I don't want to. I just are we in the show or out of the show? I don't even know anymore. I'm out of the show. Okay. I have no idea. Yeah, aren't there like thirteen of those or something? There's six yeah. and uh, growing. No, no, this is the last one. When's Seven, it coming out? Man. October. Oh, too many. This October. Yeah. I saw the trailer in oh, front can't, of. Can't do it. it nope, nope. Can't do can't it. Then it's in 3D. Found footage in 3D. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it actually looks kind of good. Can never do the series. We're missing the theatrical release. Can never do it. Oh, if it does well, there'll be another.